open the attendance session and the iClicker session, so please go ahead and log in if you haven't done so already. I know I say this every time, but I can't believe we're at lecture 11 already. <clears throat> so we had our physics sort of overview of the course, and now we're getting more into chemistry. We're going to continue for a little bit with chemistry, and then eventually move into the biology of color and evolutionary bi biology. But for now, we're dealing with chemistry still. So today will be more about uh, dyes and a little bit more about different kinds of leaf colors and more into detail as to why leaves do change color in the fall. And a review of organic versus inorganic molecules. And then today at the end of the session we're going to get into an interesting topic which is pH level. So pH actually stands for uh, potential hydrogen. And everybody is pretty much familiar with pH I think but nobody really knows what it stands for. It stands for potential hydrogen, and it's an important reaction knowing the pH of certain objects, how acidic or how basic they are, can tell us a lot about the color of the object. And in fact, last time when we were talking about how the chemist, uh, industrial chemistry industry was kick-started with sort of the um, industrial revolution and then the discovery of movine, pH would be a key factor in this, knowing how acidic or basic something is as to what kind of dye it would produce. And also specific pH indicators were developed to actually tell the composition of substances. For example, the most famous one is water. We can tell that water is safe either to swim in or to drink based on the pH level. And if you've ever worked sort of at a pool company during the summer, or if you have a pool, or we're testing chemicals, you know you have that pH kit, which tells you exactly the acceptable range of pHs, which is around neutral, so around 7, 7, 8 for pools, typically, is about right. So let's go into the lecture today. Uh, about assignment one, uh, I'm glad everybody has those in. I know some of you has, have also emailed me as you had trouble problems uh, submitting on Moodle. So I've given the assignments to your TAs. Uh, they'll need a little while to mark them, but your marks should be back to you for assignment one by February 20th. And those will be posted online. And don't worry, I'll send you uh, an email announcement saying when you can go check your grade online. Um, for now, please bear in mind that you will see a very low grade for your assignment. You'll probably see something like 12 or, I don't know, 13 or 6. That's because those are only the questions that the computer marks. That will not be your final mark. All right. Let's start with some, some quick review then. Let's get out the eye clicker. Well, the phone, eye clicker via phone or laptop, and start the polling here. So we can distinguish between organic versus inorganic molecules. 
because organic molecules are made of mainly these elements. So is it silicon and carbon, carbon and helium, helium and nitrogen, sulfur and phosphorus, or hydrogen and carbon? Those of you that came in, I'll give it a little bit longer. Oh, great. We've already got 109 attendees. That's good. Some are remote, I guess. Um, okay, so a couple more seconds. And I'm going to stop this now. So the correct answer is hydrogen and carbon. Remember we said that you can distinguish organic molecules because these are mainly made up of organic groups, organic groups being combinations of hydrogen and carbon or hydrocarbons. And to show you the slide that we had from last time as a quick flashback and review reminder, here are organic versus inorganic. So you've got these carbon-hydrogen bonds in organic molecules, usually um, with some other substance like nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, uh, sulfur, and phosphorus. So examples of, inorga of, of organic molecules include things like fuels, your gasoline in your car, rocket fuel, lighter fuel, ethane, butane, methane, ethanol, all of that. Those are all hydrocarbons, um, organic molecules. Inorganic molecules, recall the definition of organic versus inorganic. Organic is something that was living, from something that was living, and inorganic is something that was never living. Non-living thing, like rocks or sand. So inorganic molecules can definitely contain carbon, as we see in many things on Earth, but they don't contain these carbon-hydrogen groups, typically. On to the next. So movine, the first synthetic dye to be mass-produced, was discovered while attempting to treat, to, sorry, attempting to synthesize quinine, which was used to treat which disease at the time? Was it uh, syphilis, malaria, polio, mono, or mononucleosis, or uh, flu, influenza? I think it looks like most of us are have answered. So I'm going to stop this. And the correct answer is indeed B. It was malaria. It was James Henry, uh, sorry, J I keep saying James. His name is William. I don't know why, but I want to call him James. William Henry Perkin, 
who discovered Mobine in 1856 at the young age of 18. Just imagine having a discovery like that and starting your own sort of industry in your own factory. But he was trying to find a way to synthesize quinine or quinine, which was used to treat malaria, which was a very uh, popular disease in the colonies at that time. Another one, amines. An amine is what? Is it one or more organic groups joined with a sulfur atom? One or more organic groups joined with a carbon atom? Two or more organic groups joined with a hydrogen atom? One or more organic groups joined with a nitrogen atom or none of the above? And remember, when we use that term organic group, we're talking about bonds of carbon and hydrogen. Looks good. So get your answers in quick if you haven't yet. All right. So the answer is D. If you remember, we were talking about amines, and we said that they were the basis for a lot of dyes, like aniline dyes. And D is the answer. It's, a carb it's an organic group of carbon and hydrogen with a nitrogen atom. And here's a, an example, just to refresh your memory from last time. Amines look like this. Please remember in tests, I am not going to ask you to draw chemical diagrams, nor will I ask you to identify which is which. These are just for your general knowledge so you can kind of see what things look like and how complex things can get. Uh, so th these are amines. So what's going on is you have nitrogen and hydrogen. And you have nitrogen and hydrogen coming off of sort of one of those carbon groups. And this particular molecule that's shown here, the aniline, is the basis for a lot of the dyes that we use in the modern industry, especially the azo dyes, which we talked about last time. So, what then are amines a derivative of? Which kind of molecule? So, amines are a derivative of this kind of molecules. If you were looking at the slide carefully, you may have seen it if you didn't remember. But, clue is in the name. I'm going to shut this off. And again, everybody is pretty much right. 
E. Amines are a derivative of ammonia. Ammonia we talked about last time. It's a combination between nitrogen and hydrogen. It's NH4 in its ionized state, NH3 in its uh, neutral atomic state. And it ends up being a really, really important molecule in terms of imparting color to things. Uh, it also ends up being an important molecule in terms of just life. We talked last time about uh, the scientist Fritz Haber, who discovered the Haber-Bosch process, which was when you take sort of atmospheric nitrogen and use it to make ammonia, which, use, which acts as fertilizer and ends up feeding uh, the world, basically. So without the proper fertilizers from this process, we wouldn't be able to, to grow enough food to sustain our current population. Leaves change color in fall because chlorophyll production lessens due to which of the following? Is it increased precipitation, decreased temperatures, decreased sunlight, increased sunlight, or A and C? So we recall chlorophyll is a chromophore, which actually is a porphyrin that gives plants their green color. And remember from your definition of pigment, when we talk about a pigment, we're talking about something that absorbs certain wavelengths of light and reflects others. So in the case of chlorophyll, it absorbs the blue and the red and reflects the green to your eye, so the green is what you see. Okay. All right, ready, set, stop. All right. So that's interesting. Most of you chose E, A and C, which was increased precipitation and decreased sunlight. Actually, precipitation doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, it's all about decreased sunlight, C. If you recall, last time we had a video on why leaves change color. And really the reason is they change color basically because the chlorophyll, with you when you have decreased sunlight as the seasons change, basically as you move into fall, into winter, the days get shorter. It's because of the axial tilt of Earth with respect to the sun. So the northern hemisphere, when we have our fall and winter, we actually get less incident sunlight. And because of this incident sunlight, remember that uh, chlorophyll is, is an inherently kind of um, difficult pigment to produce because it needs to be produced all the time. It needs to be continuously produced. It doesn't just stay intact. So chlorophyll's continuous production completely has to do with sunlight. And when we have decreased sunlight, we have decreased chlorophyll production levels. And it can't replenish quickly. And then, of course, we get the other sort of molecules like beta-carotene or um, anocyanins showing through to give us those orange and red beautiful fall colors. So let's do a quick review of leaf color. 
I think I pretty much just did it in a second. But uh, the, the leaf color leaves are green in the summer, as you know. It's due to the presence of the chlorophyll. And as we said, the chlorophyll is a pigment. Remember, absorbs certain wavelengths and reflects, where it absorbs blue and red, reflects green. And you can read more about chlorophyll. Uh, you'll notice I give a lot of Wikipedia links. It's kind of funny, but actually a lot of the Wikipedia articles are really excellent sources. And they have a full sort of historical treatment of a lot of the things that we discuss. So I, I am a fan of Wikipedia in that regard for this course. Here's what a chlorophyll molecule looks like. You'll see at the top, in, in small writing, you can see it says chlorophyll A. This, there are several different types of chlorophyll molecule. There's A, B, C, D. And typically, the structure will look something like this. Notice that it com almost looks like a comet or something with a tail. So it has this kind of ring. This is an awful pointer. <laughs> a ring at the top with a hydrocarbon tail coming down. And this particular area, this ring here, will be stabilized by a core molecule, in this case, um, or atom. We're talking about a magnesium ion that is in the center of that, that stabilizes it and allows it to keep its color. So in typically, this is an example of chlorophyll, which is a chromophore, and the chromophore part of the molecule is where that magnesium is with the ring around it. And you'll see I've put plus plus, magnesium plus plus, which just means it's doubly ionized. It's a positive charge. It's lost two electrons. There's also something in chlorophyll. So we just said the chromophore is that part with the, of the round molecule with the ring. It's also called something else in the case of chlorophyll. It's called a chlorine. And the chlorine is this area around the magnesium ion, the stabilizer area that produces the green color or produces the ability to reflect the green color that we see. This is called chlorine. Remember, that's a chromophore, but that's only in the case of chlorine. And chlorine is the key to photosynthesis, which is a very, very important reaction I think we've all studied it at one time or another. Um, but photosynthesis basically plants uh, take sunlight and carbon dioxide and water and produce their food and also as a byproduct oxygen, which is good for us. So plants uh, use the photosynthesis process um, and end up storing the end product of that, which is glucose as their food. So it's not just chlorines aren't just useful for beautiful colors, they're useful for, uh, for plants sustaining themselves, actually. As I've already said, there's several different types of chlorophyll molecule, A, B, C, D. They're all just slightly different, but they all have that same structure with that sort of stabilizer and a long tail. And each different type, so A, B, C, and D, all are slightly attuned differently to different wavelengths. So they absorb slightly different wavelengths and reflect slightly different ones. 
which gives us these difference in green colors. Uh, again, the role of chlorophyll is to absorb the sunlight and drive the photosynthetic reactions. Let's take a look at what a photosynthetic reaction is to refresh your memory. Again, I will not ask you this on a test. I will not say balance the photosynthesis reaction, which is with all the sixes here to balance everything. But just to remember what photosynthesis is, carbon dioxide plus water in the presence of sunlight gives you glucose and oxygen. I hope that would be familiar to you, but if you didn't know it off the top of your head, that's okay. You won't have to memorize that. So let's take a quick look at two different kinds of molecules of chlorophyll. Don't be misled by the red and the green. It doesn't mean that one is red and one is green. It's just the two different colors to distinguish the graphs on here. But as you can see, we said that different kinds of chlorophyll will be sensitive to different wavelengths. So you'll recognize from assignment one a lovely sort of spectral graph, 400 to 700 nanometers in wavelength is on the x-axis. And in this case, the y-axis, instead of showing you intensity, is showing you absorbance. So how much the chlorophyll molecule absorbs certain wavelengths. So as you can see, chlorophyll B has a different peak absorbance, two different peak absorbances than chlorophyll A, which has also two different peaks of absorbance. And so the greens you get from that reflection are going to be slightly different. So when the chlorophyll is basically degenerating, as the leaf dies, as the sunlight production uh, is decreasing with the change of the seasons and chlorophyll is in less plentiful amounts, the leaf starts to change color. But what happens with the chlorophyll is it's sort of turned into this colorless molecular structure. And this structure is called a tetrapyrrole. Remember we were talking about prefixes, mono, bi, tri, tetra. So in terms of prefixes, tetra means four. Remember we talked about the tricolor theory of cones, how you had blue, green, and red cones, so three colors. And then we talked about opponent processing, which is the basi based on basically four colors, or a tetrachromatic system, which is blue, green, blue, sorry, blue, yellow, and green, and red. So chlorophyll then gets to be these tetrapyroles. What the heck is that? That's kind of a strange name. A tetrapyrrole, well, this definition won't help you much. It'll, I'm just telling you it's a group of four pyroles. Okay, not helpful. Uh, a tetra, a pyrrole, though, is one of these sort of groups of organic molecules again. So it's, it's something bonded with a double bond of carbon and hydrogen, or a single bond of carbon and hydrogen. And I'll show you a picture in a moment. So it's turned colorless now. 
the chlorophyll in this tetrapyrrole state, and we call it something different. We call it a non-fluorescent chlorophyll catabolite, or an NCC for short. Why is that important? It's important because if you remember the first picture I showed you of chlorophyll, you had this round structure that stabilized it with magnesium ion in the center and the tail. Well, you see in this one, the color is completely lost. The magnesium's gone, the stability breaks down, and the ring kind of opens up. So at this point, you have this colorless NCC, non-fluorescent chlorophyll catabolite. So, therefore, as we move closer and closer to fall, we already know this means shorter days. As the Earth turns on its axis, you get less hours of daylight and more hours of darkness. Uh, and you have cooler nights, which means chlorophyll production declines and the chlorophyll becomes less prominent, allowing other pigment molecules to show through it. And one of them we discussed last time was beta-carotene, which is from a family called carotenoids. And beta-carotene will change uh, a leaf. It won't change it. Remember that what's happening is chlorophyll production is decaying. The beta-carotene is already there in the leaf or the carotenoid is already there. And all that's happening with the color change is the chlorophyll is declining, you see it less, therefore the yellow or orange of the carotenoid shows through the leaf. So it was there all along. It's an important point to remember. Carotene absorbs our blue, green, and blue wavelengths. So if you remember, blue and orange kind of opposite colors. A carotene is, carotene when you use that specific term, beta carotene, carotene means orange, but it'll be yellow or orange colors that are produced by carotenoids. Another interesting thing is, before the leaves die, you notice that yellow color or orange color lasts long. And it's not because new carotenoids are being produced in the leaf. It's because the carotenoids are more stable molecules than chlorophyll. So now that the chlorophyll is not being continuously produced and the levels are low, uh, the pigment that you see, yellow or orange, shines through and you've got this more stable molecule in the form of carotenoids, which last for a while, pr pretty much until the leaf dies and falls off the tree. So beta-carotene, as we've already said, is from the carotenoid family. Easy to remember, carrots, pumpkins, orange things. Uh, and this is due, why do they have these sort of vibrant orange colors? They have them due to essentially conjugated bonds. I was a little, going a little while back, we were talking about different kinds of bonds. We talked about covalent, and we talked about ionic bonds. We also talked about conjugated bonds, which are another form of covalent bonds, which have alternating single and double bond structures. So really what we're talking about here when we're talking about carotenoids are these double bonds between carbon structures, largely double bonds, double and singles sometimes. Um, 
as you will notice in nature, there is a variation. Sometimes when you're seeing a tree, you'll see this tree that stands out in the sunlight, which is intensely yellow. It's the same carotenoid family. It's just a slight variation in the colors. So it can range from yellow to orange. But you know, next time you look at a yellow tree versus a red or orange tree, you'll know why. It has to do with the structure of double bonds, or single or double bonds. So the more double bonds you have in a carotenoid, the more red the tree is. If you have mainly like single bonds, it's going to appear yellow or orange. Orange is really equal number, alternating double and singles. Yellow is more singles, red is more doubles. So you'll be able to tell about the molecular structure of a tree when you see it now. Um, and uh, you can take a look at a full treatment of carotene here. So let's uh, quickly skip to our question. So a leaf is more likely to turn red if what? If the, this is a bit of a review from last time. If you don't remember, don't worry. We're going to talk about it briefly next. But a leaf's more likely to turn red if sugar content is lower, sugar content is higher, chlorophyll content is higher, beta carotene content is higher, or chlorophyll content in the leaf is lower. pretty much weighed in. Okay, I'm going to stop this now. And it was kind of said briefly in that video that we had, and I understand why you would want to say D, which is beta carotene content is higher, but it's actually not to do with that. Well, it's partially to do with that, but the answer that I'm looking for here is B, sugar content is higher. Let's see why that is. So you have these very red leaves when the sugar content in the leaf increases. So when the leaf increases, the sugar reacts to form anthocyanins. And if you recall from the video, anthocyanins are the pigment, the molecules that give leaf this red color. And there's your link for anthocyanins. But anthocyanins give us this red pigment family. So remember, it's the sugar, increased sugar, responsible for the production of anthocyanins. So what happens with anthocyanins is they absorb blue, blue, green, and green wavelengths, which mean that they reflect the red wavelengths to your eye, and so you see red. Another thing that's kind of interesting to notice is when we start to talk about pH levels, anthocyanins are 
very pH sensitive. The color of them changes according to the pH level, that is how acidic or how basic um, the anthocyanin is. If you have something very acidic, you tend to see these bright red colors. So next time you go to the grocery store, if you have, see the bright red apples, they're typically higher acid containing. When they ripen, the acid content is higher. Also with ripened grapes, they're a little less acidic than those bright red apples. They're more purpley. But again, that has to do with increased acid, acid content. Let's talk about anthocyanins. It's kind of, you don't really think about a leaf containing sugar, but it certainly does, because remember, sugars, glucose is something that's produced in photosynthesis. So anthocyanins are formed by a reaction with these sugars in the leaves and the tree sap itself. And what happens, remember we talked about beta carotene or carotenoids, and we said that the photosynth when photosynthesis uh, doesn't have enough sunlight and the chlorophyll production goes down, the carotenoids shine through. Sort of the, the orangey yellow colors shine through because they are already there. This is not the case with anthocyanins. Anthocyanins are not already there. And you may notice as well in the fall that sometimes some of the first really vibrant colors that come out are these reds sorry, these yellows and oranges, that's because the beta carotene or the carotene pigment is already there. The anthocyanins take a little bit longer to be produced. So toward the end of fall, you see all of these sort of like red and crimson-y rich pigments. And what's happening is anthocyanin in those plants is being produced basically from a sugar reaction with the sap in the presence of sunlight. So anthocyanin production does require sunlight. And for this reason, the tops of the trees, which tend to get more sunlight in the fall, also south-facing trees, which because of the rotation of Earth's axis and the way that the sun is moving across the sky in the altitude, south-facing trees would get a little bit more sunlight in the fall. So these parts of trees or plants turn red first because anthocyanins are produced in them first. So just remember when you're studying that the carotenes are already there, the oranges, the yellows, and the reds in the form of anthocyanins are produced later on. And here's an example of some trees. These are sugar maple trees. And you'll notice on the same trees, uh, if you were actually to, I'm not sure, but if you were to look at the direction of this picture, I bet you this one is south facing. Um, but these trees are kind of colored alternately yellowy orange and red because of the difference of anthocyanins in them. So sugar maples have high sugar content, which allows them to produce anthocyanins. And under these different conditions, different amount of anthocyanins will be produced. And so you have slightly different leaf colors. And again, the top of that tree, it's really, really red. It's getting more sunlight. 
chances are it's producing more anthocyanins. There are other uh, chromophores or other sort of color-giving molecules that do affect the change of leaves in the fall. And two of those, uh, one of which was mentioned in the video, they said flavonoids. Uh, flavones are a group of flavonoids. And this is the molecular structure of them. Again, you do not have to reproduce that. But notice there are some single bonds and there are some double bonds in there. And this actually gives leaves a yellow color. And you can see in this picture, this is a ginkgo leaf. And it's yellow. And it's yellow in this case because of these flavones or groups of flavonoids that are giving it its yellow color. Uh, tannins are also a common chromophore, a common substance. Tannins are brown. They give leaf brown colors. I mean, sometimes that's just that the leaf is dying. Um, but tannins are sort of like a brown, earthy color as well. What about some of those really interesting plants? Those, those plants, I, I don't know what they're called, but they're, I like looking, they look like cabbages. They're massive, and some, some of them, sometimes they have like purple and green in them, and sometimes they have white and green. So these are variegated leaves, or leaves in which the color changes across the surface of the leaf itself. And variegated leaves just exist as, um, they're not time sensitive, they're not produced in the fall, this is just a natural state of the leaf. So what gives a variegated leaf its color? And it's kind of interesting. There are many different reasons why a leaf could be different colors. But a couple key reasons we'll go into. And one of them has to do with, as we keep going back to understanding color, with light and how the light is actually physically reflected off the plant itself. So leaf variegation, this is something, this is not the reflection part. This is one of the reasons, one of many reasons for these variegated leaves. And one of the reasons is genetic, which is the plant, essentially the plant is sick. The plant doesn't have certain abilities to produce chlorophyll or its chlorophyll production is reduced. And therefore parts of it, as you see in the picture, seem to appear white or yellowy. And some plants are, are just genetically like this. Now the other source, this is kind of a really interesting one uh, from the physics point of view of it, but the color from the reflection off the leaves also gives you some of the most intricate, exotic, and beautiful leaves. At the top, this on the left is a Pilea plant, and this is a cyclamen. And on the bottom are begonias. So what's happening is, in some cases, light is reflected not right off the surface of the leaf, but from slightly under the surface of the leaf, which gives it a different quality when we see it in our eyes. So when you think about, see these plants, the light reflection is kind of penetrating the first layer of the plant and reflecting off from underneath the surface, which gives us a different kind of sheen and a different color. So, Pilea and cyclamens, or 
sometimes, um, and sometimes you probably felt this, with plant leaves, some of them feel furry. Uh, there sometimes are tiny hairs on plant leaves, and those small hairs refract and reflect light differently, so we see different colors. And this is my favorite example, actually, the begonias, because, because of these small hairs in the begonias, you see these amazingly varied leaf colors. So some of them have kind of reddy purple leaves. Some of them, this is another breed of begonia on the left here, but beside, not the flowers themselves, flowers have a totally different color source, but the leaves in here, you can see little dots of white on them. And that has to do with these hairs on the leaves. All of these kinds of different forms of reflection also lighten up the hue, gives you a yellowy or a white-ish color, and sometimes purple. So leaf color from pigments, another way that you can affect leaf color or another reason for varied leaf colors are different pigments present, just as you would think, right? You've always got uh, chlorophyll, which is green. Sometimes you have carotenoids, which are orange. And sometimes you have the production of anthocyanins, which are red. In some plants, like this Calias plants, anthocyanins are naturally present in this. It doesn't wait till fall until sort of like sap sort of oozes out of the tree and you basically have this sunlight, sap, and sugar reaction. Some plants naturally always have a certain level of anthocyanin. And in those plants, like these Calias plants, there's actually one really, really big one on campus, which is, is uh, interesting to see. It doesn't change color at all until it really dies. But you get these reddy purple hues. And interesting about the pigments, this is nature again evolving. These pigments are nature's way protecting the plant from UV radiation. So basically you have these uh, purpley pigments reflecting purpley light. As you know, UV is kind of purpley light that's in a higher frequency than we can see. But what's happening in plants like this is they have a natural shield been built in from uh, UV radiation, from UV light. And basically you get a red or a purple color at various regions. Um, further changes in color, it's kind of like, well, it's a biological, it's a living organism. So you can think all living organisms need food. So one of the, the causes in color are nutrient deficiencies. Just like when we have nutrient deficiencies, we have, for instance, nail uh, defects different sort of colors of skin and nails. Plants also have nutrient deficiencies, which give you different colors of leaves, as you see in that picture. Do not worry about reading the microscopic text. I just wanted to show you a sample. But again, you will not be tested on the, on the unreadable text in that image. It's to give you an, ex an idea of what nutrient deficiencies look like. Plants also are living organisms. So they get diseases, as this picture right up here. And you can see holes and brown patches in the leaves. 
and they also uh, get sunburned. Plants do not like excessive sunlight. And you will see the plant if it's sort of, if you put it in direct sunlight for an extended period of time, you'll get these yellowy kind of burnt regions of the plant. So let's do another question then. A pigment's transparency refers to what? Does it refer to how see-through the pigment is, or the fineness of the pigment particles, or how much white shows through the color, uh, the viscosity of the pigment and the binder, the mix of them together? Or is it the refractive index of the pigment particles? Which one is pigment transparency referring to? Okay, last answers in. pigment transparency, I think I probably said it several times last time, but the pigment transparency does refer to C, how much white shows through the color. So if you had uh, something that you were dyeing, a piece of fabric, and you were dyeing it red, if little splotches of white were showing through, that's the transparency of the pigment. It's not how see-through the pigment is, although that's generally what the word transparency means. In the case of a property of a pigment, it doesn't refer to this. And now we have a, this is about three and a half minutes about some of the world's rarest pigments, where they keep them in a sort of center in Harvard. It can be beetles that come off a cactus, it can be the dried urine of a cow, little insects that grow on an oak tree, a chunk of lead that's soaked in vinegar. It's truly amazing. We're in Harvard University outside the Forbes Pigment Collection. Pigment is a very small particle of colored material that is mixed in with the binding medium. The pigment gives paint its color. The Forbes Pigment Collection has been brought together over several decades. We have around 2,500 pigments. We have a lot of very unusual and very rare colors. So th this is, I think, one of the more unusually named pigments. It's called dragon's blood. Um, it doesn't come from dragons, it comes from rattan palms, and it gives a very bright red pigment. The unusual aspect of mummy has to do with its source rather than the color itself. And that comes from Egyptian mummies. And it's the resin that's applied to the outside of the bandages. 
I think the rarest color that we have is actually a, an entire ball of Indian yellow. And this is a pigment that is made from the dried urine of cows that are fed only on mango leaves. If you're looking at a work of art and you want to understand what is original and what's a restoration, you will take a tiny sample of pigment and analyze it. A lot of the pigments are actually toxic. So you don't want to handle the pigments and then go out to lunch. There's a, a green called emerald green that has an arsenic center to it. We can use them for telling if something is real or not. People will say this is by a certain artist and we can look at the materials that are used and decide if those materials were available during that artist's lifetime. If not, then we have to look at who might have painted that picture. I can't pick a personal favourite. It's like asking to pick a favourite child. No, the other 2,400 would feel left out. So that's kind of interesting. It's interesting to see all the, all the pigments stacked, and that's an incredible looking building as well. Um, but yeah, there, there are pigment curators all over the world. And I'm sure you see a lot of interesting things in that job. Uh, this is a video that I've put on here. Again, this video, this video is about five minutes. But uh, this is a guide at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, in Virginia, and he's showing you different kinds of herb dyes, so dyes that were in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries used to dye clothing. Um, and one of them you can see in the picture says matter. We talked about matter red. That comes from a plant, but that was a very common dye used way back into antiquity always for reds. Unfortunately, it's kind of um, the light fastness of matter red is low, so it can fade pretty fast depending on what material you're using um, when you dye this. So take a look at this. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. And he's wearing the colonial costume as well, so it's kind of, kind of interesting. Okay, another question. On a molecular level, the following are two key components of a dye. So we talked about this last time. And let's see if, uh, if you remember. So is it finasteride and chromosync, phytol or, and glycerin, chromophore or oxochromes, pigment and stearate, or chloroform and achlora. everybody's just about in.
So the answer to this one is, yes, it is chromophores and oxochromes. Some of these things sound good, but some of them are made up. Finasteride is actually a prescription drug, so that's definitely not it. Um, when you remember chromophores and oxochromes, chromophore is what gives the pigment its color, which we've gone over many times. But an oxochrome, and you can kind of remember it when you're studying it, oxo sounds like augment, and oxochrome augments the color. It makes the intensity of the color brighter, and it also is responsible for making the color sort of stick to the material. So dyes have chromophores and oxochromes. And I think what we'll do now is go for the break and I will talk about assignment two. Well, okay. I won't keep you in suspense. That's cruel. I will talk about assignment two and then we'll go for the break. Oh, don't, don't answer. Okay. So assignment two is an essay. Assignment two is an essay about surprise dies. Um, this the particular instructions for this assignment are not yet posted on Moodle. <coughs> I will get that up for you probably by the end of today, but I'm going to give you a summary here of what I'm looking for in your dye essay. You have quite a long time to do this. You have until March 2nd, and what I'm asking for is just a four to five page essay. That's uh, double spaced, four to five pages, um, about a specific dye that interests you. So, not movine though, because we have talked about movine quite a bit in class, the discovery and all of the different aspects of movine. So, any dye but movine that interests you, that features your favorite color, whatever you like. So, basically, when you're giving me this essay, and the written instructions that I post on Moodle will have this all in detail, you can have, I don't mind, it, this is more of a scientific essay, so you can have subheadings to make things more clear and divide them up. Um, what I will ask you to write about is, first of all, the type of dye that you're using, that you're talking about. So if you remember, we said there are four types of dyes. We first divided them into uh, natural versus synthetic, and then we divided them into organic versus inorganic. So you can have a natural organic, natural inorganic, synthetic organic, synthetic inorganic. So you want to tell me which type that is? You also want to tell me the approximate date that your dye was invented or found. Uh, in the cases of historical dyes, a lot of the natural organic dyes, they were, I mean, you can't trace the date of their invention, we just do see that they're used in a lot of ancient cultures like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. So for that, I don't expect a date. You can just say that these have been around as early as human beings were dying things. Uh, if there is a discoverer, however, like uh, William Henry Perkin from Movine, then say a little bit about the discoverer and what led to the discovery of this dye. A lot of dyes were just discovered by uh, experimentation 
or by serendipity, lucky accidents, basically. And that's always an interesting story to see what happened with that. So I will need you to go into the chemistry of the dye at a molecular level. You will include um, a picture or a structural diagram, structural chemical diagram of the dye. That doesn't mean you need to understand all aspects of the diagram. Just show me what it looks like. And as always, when you are including any images or any kind of material that's not your own, please cite the image with the appropriate citation and reference where you got it. So we want to look at the chemistry of the dye at the molecular level. In questions like this, I'll have a more detailed write-up of this in your essay write-up on the website. So I'll tell you more what I'm looking for. But for instance, we talked about things like ammonia. We talked about amines and some, some dyes which come from amines, amines like aniline dyes, those dyes and azo dyes. I'm kind of expecting you to go into where they come from and what core molecules make them up and what's the chromophore giving that particular dye its color. Uh, in addition, you can talk about its original uses. If it's a sort of an ancient or a, a older kind of a dye, you can talk about its modern uses as well. If it's one of the dyes that was, say, an azo dye from the from 1926 onwards. The uses haven't changed so much, but just talk about its uses then in general. For example, we talked about azo dyes. We said how azo dyes were used in just about everything, like 68% of all of the dyes that we have are azo dyes, and they were initially used in food, but then in 2003, people uh, in Europe, Azo dyes were banned from being used in foods because they were mutagenic, and some research linked them to cancer causing in cells. Um, Spin-off science. This one is, you can kind of go wild with this one, um, because often most of the dyes uh, that were developed have some sort of other application other than just the dye itself. Uh, in terms of movine, when we say spin-off science, the spin-off science you could think of of movine was, well, first of all, its discoverer was trying to synthesize quinine to treat malaria. So he didn't do that. He did find a dye, and that dye sort of spun off the whole industrial chemistry industry, which not only spawned pigments and dyes, but spawn things like treating cells and, and with color, basically using color to dye cells and target certain areas of them, target pathogens so that you could destroy diseases, and that's chemotherapy. So chemotherapy would be a spin-off science of, say, Movi. And then, you know, just a couple of pictures. Give me a picture of, and I'll write this all up. This will be for you in Moodle. So don't worry if you're not getting this all down. So a couple, at least two pictures. One would be the chemical structure of your dye, just a molecular diagram of that. And one would be um, a picture of your dye in use. 
Just show me what it looks like, the color. And finally, a bibliography. So when I do ask you to submit this for Friday, March the 2nd, um, you will again hand in all of your work using Moodle. And we're going to use a Moodle plugin in this case called Turnitin. Uh, some of you may have used Turnitin before. Turnitin just sort of filters your essay and takes a look for blocks of text that you could find on the internet. So, you know, if you've taken Google or Wikipedia and cut and pasted it, Turnitin will typically identify those uh, areas. So it's just a safeguard against plagiarism. You know, please do do your own work. The English doesn't have to be the best English in the world or the fanciest essay in the world. Uh, just as long as you include what I've written in my specifications, you can do extremely well. And it's more for you to learn about this. So don't panic about it. Just, you know, really take the time to explore it a little bit. Make your subject headings, fill in each one, and you should be fine. Okay, so that will be your second assignment. Stay tuned for it posted on Moodle. I'll send an announcement out when I've posted all the guidelines on Moodle for you. I meant to have it up. Sorry about that. It turned out to be a crazy week. Um, and that will be up shortly, though. So it's 9.35 right now. Uh, let's reconvene at 9.50 after the break. Oh, sorry, 9.55. Point. Sorry, the natural dyeing of textiles is an extremely easy and accessible way to transform that boring white tea into a landscape of vibrant natural hues. It's really quite easy to do at home, and there are tons of household items you can use in the process. We recently visited the Brooklyn Textile Arts Center to get a demo on how to do it, and we'll also explain some of the basic chemistry that's going on with the process along the way. I'm Sahara Johnson. I am an intern at Textile Art Center in Brooklyn. Um, right now we're doing a demonstration on natural dyeing. The process of this is taking um, natural things from the earth, like fruits and vegetables, um, different roots, etc., etc., and taking the color from them and translating them into a fiber. So right here I have silk that is being wetted. Um, when you are doing natural dyeing, you never want to directly put in a dry fiber into the dye bath. Um, it doesn't translate the color as well. So right here, I'm wetting it. So right here is red cabbage. It's one of my favorite things to dye with. It's really pH sensitive, so it changes color really readily. And right here is cochineal, which is actually not a plant. It's a little bug found on cacti. Yeah, and it's one of the most ancient forms of red. Um, it's really, really vibrant, you'll see in a bit. So. <laughs> with these two natural dyes, red cabbage and cochineal, there's one very big difference in how they work. Cabbage is what is called the substantive dye. It contains a pigment called an anthocyanin, which is water-soluble. This means that the pigment molecule can directly bond to a natural fiber on its own. Cochineal, on the other hand, is known as an adjective dye. 
Adjective dyes require something to stop the dye from washing out of a fiber. Cochineal is an anthraquinone dye, which is a red dye that requires a bonding material called a mordant. The mordanting process is when fibers are treated with a metal salt solution such as aluminum, chromium, copper, iron, or tin salts, creating a lasting bond between the dye and the fiber. The mordant basically allows the dye molecules to lock tightly with the fibers. Sahara, in this case, has used a substance called alum for her mordant in the cochineal dye. This is a substance that's more commonly used in the kitchen for pickling. Say I wanted to get a lavender color rather than like a deep, like royal purple. I wouldn't necessarily leave this in for very long. Um, just put the whole thing in. <laughs> and then I'll do the cochineal in this one. As we just learned, red cabbage is an anthocyanin dye. What's interesting about the color of anthocyanin pigment is that its pH directly affects the range of its color. By introducing an acid to this pigment, anthocyanins will turn red. By introducing a base, it will turn more of a bluish green color. At home, you can add lemon juice to the dye as an acid, or for a base, you can use baking soda. Keep this in mind while dyeing with red cabbage. You actually have a lot of colorful options. Right now, I am taking out my dye matter. Um, I'm pretty satisfied with the color that has been extracted, so um, just taking this out to stop that process from happening. So now I've strained out the cabbage from the dye bath. Um, there will be no more extraction happening, and now I'm going to add my fiber. I think we're about good with this. I'm pretty content with this pink and this lavender. So I'm going to take it out of the dye bath and I'm going to rinse it with water and pH neutral soap. It's very important to remember that when rinsing your fiber of excess dye, you have to use pH neutral soap. Such soaps are very common and can be found at virtually every grocery store. Pro tip, most pH neutral soaps are completely clear. If your soap is not neutral, you will in fact alter the color of your fiber. Here is my lovely lavender silk. Fun stuff. And then we'll take out the cochineal. And yeah. It's very spotted, but I like it. I think it's really beautiful. Now that you know the basics of natural dyes, you can try it out at home with tons of different natural products. One last thing to remember about these dyes is that they do change color over time and can slowly fade or go through slight variations in color. If you aren't happy with the color, you can always just go back in and dye it again. Also, you can try mixing dyes to produce a huge range of different colors. So this is a really, really easy process to do and that I encourage you all to try at home. A lot of household items like we did the turmeric and the red cabbage can be found at your local grocery store anywhere. So yeah, everything is really accessible and definitely get to it. So there you have it, natural dyeing. Uh, you could go home and use some cabbage. You could use some uh, turmeric, uh, common spice. It does give a really, really, really vibrant yellow color to anything. It's a nice one. 
Um, also your hands when you're cooking with it, it's not, that's not the best, but for fabrics it's great. Okay, so we have the chemistry of natural dyeing. You can do a natural dye for your um, dye assay if you want. This can often be interesting because you get a lot of the historical context of the dye, how it was used, and how it's being used now. So for instance, some natural dyes like indigo, which is from the indigo plant, were used from the earliest uh, recorded uses of dyes in history. But in the last lecture I mentioned in the 1800s, I think it was 1880, indigo uh, was synthesized. It was created as a synthetic dye. So a lot of the natural dyes that we had were later converted and created newly using artificial things with, uh, with in synthetic ways. Let's talk a little bit about the types of dyes. There are many types of dyes. In the video, he talked about adjective, yes. Transparency, right. So that, that like cochineal, it was an insect, natural insect. And what happened, it did have like little blo red blotches with parts of white. So that would be kind of an example of transparency. However, like if you noticed it, if you saw that red thing, you saw the blotches of red, but the rest of it had been dyed pretty, you know, consistently ready pink. Um, and that wouldn't technically be transparency because you're, you weren't seeing any of the white through it. So that's the idea that you'd see blotches, but in that particular case, the dye permeated all of it. And uh, so you could see shades of the color, but not quite the white. So yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so uh, there's different types of dyes. Uh, you will be seeing this quite a bit as you do your research. And the dyes in today's world are characterized by how they're used or what they're used for. But they have main, a couple main categories. The first set of categories are acidic, basic, direct, mordant, and natural. So we already know what mordant means. Mordant is the binding dye, basically. It's when you add a metallic salt. The other dyes are acidic and basic, so that has to do with how the pH of the substance changes. So you can have acids that dye things more red. Bases will tend to dye things more blue. Um, direct dyes, which are the dyes that don't need intermediate steps, as you just saw in the video, those dyes bond completely to the fabric right away and do not need mordants. And then there's the natural dyes as well. So typically in all of these kinds of, of dyes, this is ionic bonding that's happening. So recall ionic bonding is when you have a situation where electrons are not shared one is given, and sort of one is taken by one atom, but the atoms retain, <coughs> retain a kind of a chemical bond. Okay, so they become, one atom becomes more positive, and one becomes more negative. So they basically form ionic bonds, these kinds of dyes with the surfaces that they color. Another type of dye is what you'll hear referred to as a solvent. 
So when you think of solutions, a solution is something that you have some particulate matter dissolved in a solvent. So that could be water, it could be a number of different things. But solvent dyes have the pigment particles dissolved into them. So this is not the ionizing kind of bonds that we see in these other kinds of dyes. This is actually just dissolving and mixing. And you actually see this all the time if you have cake dyes or food dyes and you put it in water. What's happening is the food dye is just dissolving into the water and you have a nice solution that's uniform throughout. So typically solvent dyes are used in a lot of food products. Okay, so dyes, one last thing to say about dyes is we said they were unstable and they were unstable because the electrons had the ability to move around more freely and reflect and absorb things in different ways, giving you different wavelengths. When a dye sets, when it bonds with the fabric, that flexibility of electrons is lost. It sets and then it's permanent. So basically the dyes are permanent when they set with material because they react and bond with the material either through ionic bonds or through dis dissolving. And then their molecular structures are kind of frozen in time and that is the way the color stays in the material. They become then permanent. Here's a couple of different resources to get you started with your research on dyes. They're all very good. Um, and uh, do take a look at them to give you an idea. If you have no clue which dye you'd like to use, take a look at these and you may get a better idea. There's also um, another couple of resources. Since you're, you know, you're writing an essay, I think it's, it's so rare now that we often just use, you know, open up a a book or do essay research by going to the library and getting out like 50 books. But if you are um, book disposed, if you enjoy the uh, held paper, then, then you can actually take a look at these books. And I think these are actually on reserve for us at the library. There's a nice um, book about dyeing, about colors, uses of dyes and pigments. And then this Bright Earth book by Philip Ball is a very interesting one to look at. In our lecture about paints, when we go into talking about this, we'll see, uh, we'll encounter Philip Ball again. Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about pH. What does pH stand for? It stands for potential hydrogen. So if you remember, hydrogen has one um, proton and neutron and one electron. It's potential hydrogen. And bases have more hydrogen and they're more positive, basically. And acids are more negative. So the pH scale that we use today uh, gives you, typically, there's a number of indicators or chemical substances that you can test pH of, say, water or whatever you're testing with. And there's usually a color scale. So this is what the color scale looks like. It goes from 0 to 14. And a neutral pH, something that's neither acidic, acidic nor basic, has a pH of 7, right, where it says 
although my pointer will not work, where it says neutral in the middle at 7, that is a good level for water to be at, obviously. Um, as you get down below 7, then you have uh, acidic things. So below 7, down to 0, you have something that is strongly acidic at 0. And on the other end, as you move up to 14, you have something that's more alkaline. Alkaline is a synonym for acidic, for, sorry, for basic. So you're getting more basic as you go upward to a maximum of 14. What is this actually measuring? So the pH actually measures, since we said it's potential hydrogen, right? And you think of a hydrogen, think of a hydrogen ion, it's essentially a proton. So we're actually measuring by pH the ability of a substance to accept or to give a proton. So if it's accepting a proton, generally you're thinking of it as becoming more positive. If it's giving the proton away, it loses some of its positive charge, so it's a little bit more negative. So the accepting protons, the more positive ones, those are bases. The donating the protons, giving them away and becoming more negative, those are acids. Here's another view of a pH scale. Recall 7 is neutral, so that's in the middle. But this is a nice um, summary of some sort of common substances. Uh, battery acid is extremely, extremely uh, acidic, obviously. There's also alkaline batteries, but that's a different story. Um, there's lemon juice. Think of acids. You think of sour-tasting things. So there's lemon juice, vinegar, um, gastric fluid in your stomach, which breaks down food. Uh, and then when we get sort of up and above this neutral level, we get a number of the bases are things like baking soda, things like ammonium-based or basically ammonia-based household cleaners. Those substances are very basic. And you can think of them basic as being like bitter and uh, bitter tasting. Not that you'd go taste your cleaning fluid. Please don't. I hope you don't. But it would be bitter. Um, okay. So you notice in the top of that particular diagram, it has a minus 1. The pH scale does uh, actually go down to minus 5 in the case of something called superacids. So superacids can go beyond zero down to minus five. That's just an extremely acidic, um, deadly for human consumption thing. We also have super bases, but they don't, those don't go any higher than 14. So you can basically go from minus five with a superacid to 14 to a super base. And again, here's water at seven. And ocean water is a little bit more basic. It's got eight. So when I said pool pHs, when you want a pool pH, you obviously want your pH to be seven. Um, but if it's like eight, that's okay too. So indicators. How do we tell pH at all? H how do we understand how these colors change? Well, we understand that by something called an indicator. An indicator is a dye which has a bit of both. It has some acids that are very, very, very weak that will change a certain color. 
and it has some very weak bases that will change another different color. And you can actually take this and use it to test each substance and see what color it turns and you'll know which is acidic, acidic which is basic. So again, this conjugated bond idea comes in again. Remember we were talking about red and conjugated bond and those double conjugated bonds of carbon and red give you redder plant leaves with anthocyanins. So a similar thing happens with indicators. They get more and more red when something is acidic and they tend to get more and more blue when something is basic. So the color change happens when the proton is either accepted by one substance or given away by the other substance. And losing or gaining this proton changes the structure of the molecule and again that changes its ability to either absorb certain wavelengths or reflect certain wavelengths. And that, the reflected wavelengths go to your eye and that is the color that you're perceiving. So a quick video, three minutes about indicators. In this video, we're going to have a look at the pH scale and some other simple indicators of acids and alkalis. In other videos, we have seen what makes something acidic, neutral or alkaline. We can tell if something is acidic, alkaline or neutral by using an indicator. Indicators are substances that show different colours when they are in acidic or alkaline conditions. Litmus paper is a simple indicator that tells us whether something is acid or alkaline. Litmus is red in acids and blue in alkalis. Litmus paper is made from lichens which have been used to dye cloth for hundreds of years. It can be used as a liquid or paper. The paper is easier and more reliable. It comes as red litmus paper and blue litmus paper. Red litmus paper changes colour from red to blue under alkaline conditions, but no change under acidic conditions. Blue litmus paper changes colour from blue to red under acidic conditions, but no change under alkaline conditions. So just remember that red litmus paper changes colour for alkalis and blue litmus paper changes colour for acids. However, litmus paper only tells us whether something is acid or alkaline, but it does not tell us how acidic or alkaline a substance is. For this, we have the pH scale and a universal indicator. Universal indicator is a mixture of different indicators or dyes which has many different colour changes and so shows us the pH value of the solution. Again, it can be used as a liquid or a paper. The pH runs from 0 to 14, with 0 being extremely acidic, 7 being neutral, and 14 being extremely alkaline. Stomach acid is a strong acid with pH of about 2. Acid rain has a pH of about 5.5. Milk is neutral, with a pH of 7. Seawater is a slightly alkaline. Soapy water is a strong alkaline and bleach is a really strong alkaline with a pH of 13. Universal indicator is so called due to its ability to indicate the entire pH spectrum. There are other indicators that can be used that have other color changes, but these two are the ones you need to know.
We can also get even more accurate measurements of pH using a pH meter, which will give us readings to 0.01 of the pH. So from this lesson, you should now know indicators can tell us whether something is acidic or alkali and how acidic or alkali it is. Red litmus paper changes color for alkalis and blue litmus paper changes color for acids. And universal indicator can give us more detail, indicating where on the 0 to 14 pH scale a solution is. Acids are from 0 to 6, neutral is 7, and alkalis are 8 to 14. So that was a quick overview of indicators, uh, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with the blue and red litmus paper. I mean, in most, you know, first chemistry labs, you'll get the litmus paper, you'll dip it in the solution and wait and see if it changes. So uh, just the important thing to remember is um, there's a universal indicator and there's litmus paper, which are the best, but, uh, sorry, the best in and most commonly used. Uh, and pH really though, for our purposes of understanding color, you can always, always be sure that the pH of a substance is going to affect the color. So in that video where um, the young lady was dyeing different swatches of silk, she was very careful to say, make sure that your soap is pH neutral. Because your dye can do anything it wants, but if you are rinsing out your dye, in soap that has a pH which is you know, acidic or basic or alkaline, then you can change the color of the dye itself. So you always want to have pH neutral um, soaps and rinses. Unless, of course, you're intending to change the color of the dye, which you can do by making something more acidic, as she showed with the, that bowl of uh, cabbage leaves. She showed you making it more acidic, adding a little acid to it, little vinegar or something will give you a more of a red color. Adding a little more basic to it, like baking soda, will give you a more of a bluer color. So some common characteristics of acids and bases. Well, acids taste sour. If, uh, if something like a lemon you can think of. And bases tend to taste bitter. Again, do not taste acid and bases. That's not a good indicator of <laughs> which is which. Um, but in general, they do have these effects. And you can often smell a strong acid. You can smell it because it makes you tear up and it, it kind of burns your nose. Um, the pH of any solution is found by indicators, as we just saw. And the classic case is litmus paper. But with the litmus paper, with the blue and the red color change, you don't get a quantitative measurement of how acidic or how basic something is doesn't tell you the actual number. So for this we use a number of different indicators to get the actual number. And there are many, many pH indicators, some of which are listed here. Um, a very familiar one which you may have worked with in chemistry labs is phenolphthalein. Phenolphthalein is um, like a magenta type substance. It's, it's kind of clear with acids and then it becomes increasingly magenta as something is increasingly basic or alkaline. Thymol blue, same thing, it turns red with acids, turns blue with bases. So this will show you the way the various indicators, this is how each of them change. 
with a reaction to acids on the left and bases on the right. And a lot of these are available, I mean, y you can buy them in kits, you can buy them on the internet, um, and they're also included in pool kits for water testing. That's great, but let's talk about how they color nature. Acids and bases are prevalent in nature, and you will see that they show up by having a clear effect. So for instance, we did talk about those red leaves in the fall, the anthocyanins. Anthocyanins are basically more acidic. The leaves in the anthocyanins turn red. And in basic conditions, what happens is the leaves lose some of that really, really, really red color. So if you see a brilliant tree almost glowing, you know that a couple things, right? You know that it's probably getting a lot of sunlight to have produced the anthocyanin in the first place. You also know that given the red, brilliant red color, chances are the pH of what's happening in the leaves of those trees, it's very, very acidic. If it's a duller red, more of a bluish, then chances are the leaves have more of a basic pH. You can also see this in grape juice. They have white and purple grape juice, the purple or red I guess it's called red grape juice. So it's, it's reddy purple when it's more acidic. And then th that yellow or white grape juice that you can drink is basic or alkaline. Uh, same thing with cabbage. You have red cabbage and you have green cabbage. The red cabbage is purple, it's acidic. The green is, is more basic. And another thing that, that uh, has to do with pH, a lot of flowers, um, for instance, poppies, the vibrant red that you get in poppies are due to the acidity in the flower. So poppies and things like blue cornflowers, which are extremely alkaline, extremely basic, this is all a result of pH level, which gives us our colors. I guess it doesn't want to work. Another uh, really, really common pH indicator, you may not think of it because it's an actual plant, so you don't think of a plant as an indicator, but it is an indicator for one aspect. You see hydrangeas a lot in the spring. You see them in sort of potted plant holders. They're really lovely plants, um, but they actually are one of nature's indicators. They indicate the acidity or the um, alkalinity of the soil that they're planted in. And this is how, no, it's not going to work, battery probably died. Okay, so this is how different hydrangeas get their color. So you can change the color of your hydrangea, do a little experiment, buy a hydrangea, white hydrangea or like a pinky hydrangea, pour some vinegar in it or acid in it, it'll turn more blue. I actually did that, I wanted really nice blue hydrangeas and I put acid in it and I killed it. I put too much. But changing the acidity of the soil will change the color of the flower. So it can be changed by altering the acidity. So in a typically neutral soil, your hydrangea tends to be like white or a creamy color. And often when they're sold in bouquets in a grocery store, you see them kind of like white. But if you have an acidic soil, you get these otherworldly kind of blue flowers. 
And then the basic soils give you the pink and the purple hydrangea blooms. Kind of interesting as well about hydrangeas is that they accumulate aluminum. That's very unusual. They're one of the few plants that does this. So the aluminum is essentially released from acidic soils and this accumulation of aluminum forms different complexes, different molecular complexes in the flowers giving them an even deeper, richer blue color. So instead of maybe pouring acid into my soil, I should have like somehow dissolved some aluminum and put it in there if I wanted to get my nice blue hydrangeas like this. And that is the story of pHs. So we're going to leave off here today. Here are some additional references. I'll put up your essay uh, this weekend and uh, have a good weekend. Do not freeze.